This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Remember, last week when we started this program, we mentioned that Governor Gretchen Whitmer had said she was contemplating expanding her earlier executive order to mask up with something new to make people comply with it. Well, as we all know now, she did. Just before our last week's program went on the air around Michigan, She decreed that all businesses mandate that customers wear masks when entering the premises or they will not be served or allowed to do business at that establishment. In other words, the business itself, let's say Kroger's, has no discretion as to whether to serve potential customers. The business must force the customer to act in accordance with the governor's wishes. Early this week, the governor extended her earlier state of emergency declaration for Michigan to August 11th. That is the overarching decree that gives her the ability to issue all her other proclamations. It is being contested in court by numerous parties, including the legislature, and the state court of appeals is scheduled to issue a decision on one such lawsuit next month. And the state Supreme Court will hear arguments on September 3rd on a demand by a federal judge that the state's highest court must weigh in on this matter. But you may also remember that I have said on this program several times, including last week, that the most decisive way to curb the governor's seemingly unfettered authority is not by depending on some court of law to make a determination, but to pursue what is known as a legislative initiative. That will take time, and it will be very difficult to do, and the clock may run out on any such effort before the end of the year. It will take a lot of money and effort to accomplish, to collect a minimum of 340,000 valid signatures on petitions within a 180-day 180 period, which is less than the number of days between now and the end of 2020. And by the end of this year, the end of 2020, the State House of Representatives may not be controlled by Republicans anymore. If Democrats regain the majority of the House in the November 3rd general election and assume control of the House beginning in January— You can be sure they will not provide votes to certify into statute the language of the petition. Both chambers, the Senate and the House, must cast a majority vote to do that. And the only chamber that will be in Republican hands for sure after December 31st will be the state Senate. So... To be sure of prevailing, the petitioners must depend on Republicans to be in control of both chambers, and they can be certain of that only this year, not next. This petition language is vehemently opposed by Governor Whitmer and by former state Democratic Party Chairman Mark Brewer, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. 
Now, last week, the Board of State Canvassers, invoked in part by the Whitmer during uh, the COVID-19 crisis, they okayed petition language for a petition drive that would repeal the so-called Riot Act. Unlock Michigan, the group behind the effort to repeal the 1945 Riot Act, wants to repeal it because it is the one that Whitmer has used that does not require legislative approval to continue a state of emergency. Another law, the 1976 Emergency Management Act, does require legislative approval to continue an emergency beyond 28 days. Does this petition effort have a chance to succeed? Yes, is my answer. But it all depends on the organizational skills and energy of Unlock Michigan. Yes, the signature collection bar has been set high, 340,000 signatures, as I said. But if the group can match the prowess of Brooks Patterson, who was the Oakland County executive back in 2006, in his initiative to repeal the single business tax or of right to life of Michigan in 2013 to prohibit health insurers from covering abortion services without purchase of a separate rider in their petition drives, those two, 2006, 2013, they should get quick approval before the end of the year from the Republican-controlled legislature, as I have said. Remember, the 2006 and 2013 efforts were undertaken because of two governors. The first, Democrat Jennifer Granholm, and secondly, Republican Rick Snyder, who would not have signed bills to accomplish what the legislature wanted. So those petition drives were undertaken to end-run the governors, whose signature is not required on an initiative. So is this endeavor now being untake, undertaken by Unlock Michigan? Of course, it's uh, even if it's successful, it may come too late to rectify the enormous damage to Michigan's economy done by the executive orders of Governor Gretchen Whitmer to this point. But wait, the big news this week on this issue as that a committee represented legally by attorney Mark Brewer and led politically by former U.S. Representative Joe Schwartz, who used to be a Republican, by the way, is asking the Michigan Court of Appeals to order the Board of State canvassers to call back the petition drive to repeal the 1945 Riot Act. This group calls itself Keep Michigan Safe, and it claimed in a suit filed this week that state election officials approved an, quote, inaccurate and misleading summary, unquote, for Unlock Michigan, which wants to eliminate the state law that Governor Whitmer is using to issue her ruling emergency declaration. Keep Michigan Safe claims the Board of State Canvassers did not provide proper notice that it was going to vote on Unlock Michigan's petition at its July 6th meeting. It also claims that Unlock Michigan's amended petition, which was approved by the board, was not properly disclosed to the public. So 
Former Chairman Brewer wants the court to order election officials to order Unlock Michigan to restart the process of presenting a proposed 100-word summary with proper public notifications in place. In other words, folks, this group wants to run out the clock. Now, Joe Schwartz, a former state senator and a physician by trade, said he represents a bipartisan coalition that, quote, understands the seriousness of pandemic and the need for the state's chief executive to act immediately and outside of partisan politics. It would be great if the governor didn't need these powers, but she does, Schwartz said. And I'm quoting here from Joe Schwartz. She isn't doing anything she wants to do. She's trying to keep us safe. But Fred Zwolick of Unlock Michigan called the suit frivolous. None of the arguments made in the suit were made during the Board of State Canvassers meeting, signaling to him that nobody seemed to share these reservations at the time. And Zwolick said, quote, it's hard to understand how a summary of a one-sentence proposal is misleading, unquote. So we are out of time in this segment, but that, to me, is the most important interlinked series of developments this week. We'll be back in a minute with our first of three guests. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have a very interesting guest on the other line with us. He is Representative James Hodzma of the 62nd House District in Calhoun County. Uh, He represents seven townships and the cities of Battle Creek, Albion, and Springfield, Representative Hodzma, thanks for being our guest. Bill, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate that invitation. And I want to just start out by mentioning that I discovered that you are the son of missionaries and that you spent part of your early life in Africa. Is that correct? I mean, that's fascinating. That is correct. Uh, My parents were foreign missionaries in Zimbabwe, and I did... uh, most of my high school uh, years in uh, what was Rhodesia, and I uh, lived in different parts of the country in a large city called Bulawayo, and then uh, later uh, near the Mozambique border at a very crucial time in uh, Southern African history. Uh, at the time, Mozambique became independent, and just before Zimbabwe became independent, and uh, during all the strife in the uh, 1970s and 1980s in South Africa. So I had a front row seat for a lot of world history, and it was an opportunity for me to um, apprehend from a different lens uh, the world as opposed to just uh, apprehending it from uh, Muskegon, which is my hometown. Well, for, for sure, I don't think anybody else in the legislature, 148 legislators, have a background like yours, really unique and unbelievable. How did you end up in Battle Creek? 
I work for a law firm, which is based out of Muskegon. I started uh, practicing law after completing law school in 1984 in Muskegon, and I joined uh, the firm I presently practice with, McCroskey Law, back in 1987. Uh, And we have uh, then uh, and now a Battle Creek satellite office, and an opportunity became available in 1994 once a law partner separated from our firm to join the Battle Creek location. So I came down here in 1994 to staff that office and still do. So I hadn't been in Battle Creek as a child or a young adult. Uh, I first came to Battle Creek when uh, this law firm hired me in 1987, and, and it's become my hometown, uh, my adopted hometown, and, and uh, I think it's a wonderful city, and I'm very fortunate to have landed here. Battle Creek is a fascinating city. Don't you have something like the second oldest symphony orchestra or something in the country or at least in Michigan or what? I mean, it's really kind of amazing. We have uh, a great symphony orchestra within uh, Oregon as our symphony director, and it is about 110 years old. Um, it's a remarkable treasure among many treasures that uh, people discover when they come to Battle Creek, like the Binder Park Zoo uh, or uh, like uh, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. So we have a lot of uh, great jewels in the Battle Creek and South Central Michigan uh, community and and. Again, it's easy to miss when you're just kind of uh, running to South Haven from the southeast side of the state. Uh, But if you stop in, I'll be happy to show you around and show some of the sites of Battle Creek. One of the interesting things about the pandemic, there's been a lot less travel. And I think when there's a lot less travel, you discover some uh, wonderful things in the community where you reside. And you realize you don't have to drive 100 miles to see uh, some some um, very interesting um, buildings and remarkable architecture and meet people with remarkably interesting histories. Right. And you uh, took an interest in local politics. You served several terms, I believe, on the Calhoun County Board of Commissioners. And in 2018, you were elected to the State House of Representatives to fill an open seat. This is your first of what would be three terms in the state house um how did you happen to decide to run for the state house and what were your goals when you announced your candidacy bill when i uh was recruited to run back in 2015 in context of the 2016 cycle it certainly wasn't something that was within uh my ambit of what i had expected to do or strategies I expected to accomplish in relation to uh, the rest of my life. Uh, it was something that at first I wasn't eager to, to, to try. Uh, as I said, I did uh, run in 2016 against uh, an incumbent, John Bison, who's now in the Michigan Senate. And uh, they worked on me for a long time to get me to say yes. Uh, it was about a nine-month gestation period. So I finally <laughs> said yes in uh, November 2015, and I enjoyed the process. I didn't enjoy the outcome. I lost by 209 votes in 2016 to the incumbent. Uh, but when Dr. Bison announced in uh, June 2017 he would run for the Michigan Senate, uh, there was an open seat opportunity. And 
again, having enjoyed it in 2016, I said yes again in relation to running in 2018, and this time came out on top. And you, having served in the legislature, know there's a lot of interesting things to learn. Uh, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to uh, get to know uh, the energy sector in Michigan as I have on the Energy Committee or the transportation sector as I have on, in the Transportation Committee, but for my election to the Michigan legislature. In terms of what uh, I wish to do, and uh, I announced I would run again, doing so back in December 2017 in the context of the 2018 election, uh, I hope to emphasize uh, the priority of public K-12 education, the affordability of public uh, colleges and universities attendance, um, clean water, and uh, good jobs. And in terms of accomplishing, I think you apprehend, uh, having served in the legislature, that before you go in, there often is uh, you, you shoot for the stars and land in the moon sometimes, and uh, it is difficult when you're in the minority uh, to accomplish all that you uh, came in and hoped you'd accomplish, but I'm hopeful this year we might pick up four seats, and uh, if I were in the majority this year, accomplish uh, many more things in context of what I'm hopeful the House might do uh, and, and do that in collaboration with the governor. What about K-12 public education in Calhoun County in particular, the schools in your district, particularly uh, in the context of this uh, terrible coronavirus pandemic and how it's being handled by, let's say, the governor with her executive orders and by the school districts themselves looking forward to this fall? Well, pre-pandemic, I'll tell you that there is an unusual issue in Calhoun County and incorporates part of my district, and that's an issue arising out of the former Albion Public Schools. Uh, the Albion Public Schools uh, became annexed to the Marshall Public Schools back in 2016, and uh, that's consequent to just a large exodus from students from the Albion Public Schools. Albion is part of the 62nd District and I think that's uh, an indication of some of the challenges that exist in many districts in context of schools of choice. And uh, it's, it's been really interesting from the perspective of a community, as is Albion, uh, with a world-class uh, private liberal arts college there, uh, to see that community continue to thrive despite the fact it no longer has uh, as a civic source of pride its local public schools. In context of the pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of challenges here, and one of the things that's been most remarkable uh, in terms of what the pandemic has showed us is the uh, great unevenness and perhaps inequity in relation to what district uh, a family lives or what district uh, children uh, live in who attend a school in relation to broadband access. Uh, it was remarkable to me when I, when I learned how virtual learning could happen in certain districts but not in others. Uh, that some kids who had uh, the ability to be on Internet didn't have parents who could afford Internet. And I think one of the most remarkable things I, I learned is that one of the districts in our intermediate school district uh, had over 30% of its teachers not able to uh, reach the Internet from their residences because of rural broadband um, limitations. So. 
I think one of the things going forward with a great deal of uh, opaqueness in, in context of uh, late August and who will be starting is how we're going to do uh, education, how we're going to do it safely, if we're going to do it in person at all, if it's going to be done virtually, how can it be done equitably so that all kids across the intermediate school district across our region might be educated with with some degree of similarity. Yeah, Representative, I wish we could go on longer. We barely scratched the surface, but you did a great overview of your district and its challenges. Thank you so much, Representative Jim Hodzma of Battle Bill, Creek. I really appreciate it. I look forward to having the opportunity to talk to you again in the future. We'll do it. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have another legislator, but this one's a senator. Uh, Senator Jim Runstead is the representative in the Senate of the 15th Senate District, which has six townships, six cities in southwestern Oakland County. He's a Republican from White Lake, and he is the prime sponsor of a resolution which... In many cases, people don't pay much attention to resolutions passed by the House and Senate because they don't seem to carry the weight and significance of bills. But in this case, this is a resolution that will go on the November 3rd general election ballot for all the voters in the state to vote on. And it would protect residents against unreasonable searches and seizures, clearly defining in the Michigan Constitution that electronic data and communications are property and are exempt from search and seizure without a warrant. So, Senator Runstead, thanks for being our guest. And we need a lot of explanation for you about this and how this came to be. Well, Bill, thank you uh, for having me on, and it's been a, a lengthy process uh, to get this uh, uh, on the ballot. Uh, it's one of the things I began working on in my first year when I was elected to the House of Representatives, and part of uh, the concern I had was uh, the, I guess, departments, um, uh, police officers and departments, uh, particularly around the nation, that we're using some of the new technologies in ways that uh, really, I would say, blatantly violate the Constitution. Uh, there's equipment that's called hailstorm and stingray equipment that mimics a cell phone tower and can pull a lot of uh, personal data off of, say, a cell phone and, and other electronic equipment. And one article I was reading about a department, not here in Michigan, but in another state, that proudly said they had used it over 300 times without a warrant. Uh, also, it does not have any fingerprint like the lean system where you check in and you know who has checked it in, what are they using it for. You can uh, call them into account if they're misusing it and checking on a old boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, this stuff doesn't have that kind of uh, a fingerprint. So uh, this new technologies that are being developed all the time have the ability to really intrude into our private lives, our private uh, papers, uh, if we want to describe it that way, 
and uh, really uh, have a much more negative impact than even when the Constitution was originally written. And in the Fourth Amendment, they said it requires a warrant to access your uh, your papers. And uh, because it says papers, and now we're using a, a lot of electronics, there are a lot of departments that viewed your papers as just uh, you know made out of uh, wood and it's actual paper and anything short of that that's electronic uh, that the Fourth Amendment does not apply. So uh, that being the case, I wanted to, uh, I, I looked originally at statute, but it uh, would have been much more difficult to get something through the legislature than if we can have the people actually vote on it. And so it's taken uh, two years or four years I tried in the House and uh, uh, couldn't get it through. It got through the House uh, unanimous with, uh, to uh, the Senate, but it couldn't get through the Senate. And then uh, this term, thank goodness, uh, came unanimous out of the uh, Judiciary Committee in the Senate, went to the full vote of uh, the Senate, a bipartisan, unanimous out of the Senate, went over to the House, um, and there it had to be voted out uh, on the Thursday before the in-district break. And if it wasn't done on that day, then there wouldn't have been the time to get it on the ballot. And I was uh, very pleased that uh, Lee Chatfield, the Speaker of the House, uh, found out that uh, it had to go through at that point. He had to put it up for a vote on the floor at that point, or it was going to be dead once again. And I really appreciate that he uh, did a, a lot of uh, extra work with all they had going on that day to make sure this got put up on the floor, and it was voted unanimous out of the House as well. So it has been unanimous out of the House and Senate. It will be going to the, uh, uh, the people in November, and uh, the same language was passed out of Missouri by 75% vote of the people. It was voted in New Hampshire by 82% vote of the people, and I believe it will exceed 80% vote of the people here in the state of Michigan in November. Wow, that is amazing. I mean, uh, unanimous vote in both the House and Senate to put something on the ballot, that is a rarity, right? It is a very rare thing. In <laughs> fact, uh, I was asking uh, political old-timers how long it's been since uh, something has come out of the uh, – uh, you know, the House and Senate got on the ballot, and it's been quite a long time since that's happened. Well, it really is fascinating to me that you say it was actually easier, obviously, to get this through as a resolution to go on the ballot for the voters of Michigan to approve or disapprove than it was to get a bill passed. And for that matter, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, they have pointed out in an article supporting the New Hampshire uh, legislation that you just referred to, that without protections explicitly enshrined in the state constitution, the right to electronic data privacy exists at the whims of state legislators is the way they put it. So in other words, there, there must have been apprehension in the legislature that by statute, you know, maybe this isn't such a great idea and let's just turn this over to the people. Yeah, it was one of these uh, uh, these issues that you, you're you're describing it accurately. It's a surprise that you would think something would be much easier to get through 
uh, in uh, you know a regular statute. Right. Uh, you just pass it through committee and then pass it through. Then it would be to uh, go to the vote of the people. But in a case like this, there were stakeholders that were battling me every step of the way back when I was in the House and then in the Senate, even on this, and it would have been much more so, I think, if I tried to do it in statute. But putting over to the vote of the people is something that uh, the legislators were uniformly agreed, yes, let's put this before the people, and if this is something that they believe, uh, then we will make this constitutional change. And I I truly believe it will exceed 80% vote of the people because people are, are getting awfully tired of what we're seeing with uh, a lack of privacy. I, I would like to go even further and try to get uh, some of these companies that uh, grab all of our data and share all of our data, and, and we don't have any clue of, of what's going on uh, to uh, make a difference there. But this is certainly a, a vast improvement over what we have with uh, so many um, authorities and departments being able to arbitrarily make rules that each new technology they can misuse until they're called to account, and you have an ongoing uh, number of years before it gets adjudicated, as has happened at the Supreme Court. These cases have made their way up, and the Supreme Court says, well, you can't use that particular technology without a warrant. And then there's another one, and then there's another. It just, it just would never stop. This is going to put an end to all of that. You know, Senator, we've had some years, you remember them back in 2012, there were six proposals on the ballot in November, and just two years ago, there were three. Uh, Right now, it looks like, what, this may be the only proposal on the ballot this coming November 3rd? Uh, That's that's the case. There's one dealing with uh, Elliot Larson uh, and uh, uh, sexual orientation, but that's that's doubtful that it's going to have the... uh, uh, go through the entire process. So in this, this case, it's highly likely this is going to be the only uh, thing on the ballot in November. Wow. Well, you've given a great explanation of what it's all about. Congratulations to you for seeing this through. And obviously, this is something you just thought of at the last minute uh, this year. <laughs> you've been working on this, and uh, you got it done. So congratulations, Senator Jim Runstead of the 15th Senate District in Oakland County. Senator Runstead, Thank thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us once again, he's been on before, John Cuvillon, who is the chief cook and bottle washer, CEO of JMC Analytics and Polling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. John Cuvillon, thanks for being with us. Good morning, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, you guys down there in Louisiana had a presidential primary election. I mean, we've almost forgotten what they are here in the last couple of months, you know. Uh, It was all the rage here uh, for most of the winter. And then uh, Joe Biden kind of wrapped things up and the coronavirus hit and uh, nobody's paid much attention. But there are a few lingering presidential primaries. And you had one in Louisiana. And I'm just going to ask you what happened and what bearing 
does it have uh, in Louisiana, the results of your primary on, you know, results in other primaries or what impact does it have on a state, even like Michigan, way up north, you wouldn't think there'd be any connection. Is there anything that could be read into what happened in the Louisiana presidential primary? There are some signals that I think are applicable in Michigan and other states. So more specifically, the presidential primary we had last Saturday was, in fact, twice delayed. It would have been on March 24th, so perhaps we would have had more of a chance to weigh in on things had there not been a pandemic. But anyway, we did have it. And a couple things that caught my attention. So on the surface, Joe Biden won easily with 80 percent, and Donald Trump won easily with 96 percent. And Louisiana, unlike Michigan, does have a closed primary, meaning that party registration does matter in terms of who can participate. But the thing I found interesting when digging into the numbers are some things that I think are applicable to Michigan and elsewhere. The first is Joe Biden did much better in the urban areas, and particularly those areas with the large black populations. But among registered Democrats in the rural parishes, he ran far weaker than his statewide norms. So that's in line with what we see nationally, which is President Trump pretty much owns the rural areas. And on President Trump's side, even though he won a near-unanimous vote from registered Republicans, the numbers were a fair amount weaker in the more urban, affluent areas. So in other words, think of something, think of a defection in, say, an Oakland County or a Livingston County or a Kent County or something like that. I could see that kind of thing happening in the, in the fall. The other thing which I found was kind of interesting, and again has some national applicability, is we had five times the mail-in volume that we had in the 2016 presidential primary, and we hit records in terms of the mail volume. And I do know that there has been a push nationwide and, of course, in Michigan for increased mail-in balloting, which it has its good and bads. I think the thing that needs to be communicated to people is that mail-in balloting takes longer to process so that you're not going to have quite as instantaneous of reporting on election night because the results on from those who vote on election day who tend to be more Republican may be entirely counterbalanced by a huge volume of mail that takes days or even a couple weeks to count. So those are kind of some of the takeaways that I saw from the Louisiana primary that I do believe have national applicability as well. Do you have any idea what the percentage of the vote was absentee in the presidential primary last Saturday in Louisiana? So here in Louisiana, 39% voted before Election Day, and this is compared to the 15% who voted before Election Day in the 2016 presidential primary. So, in other words, mail-in voting was about 30%—I mean, excuse me, in-person early voting was about 30% higher, and absentee-slash-mail-in voting was five times what it was in the 2016 primary. So it was a game-changer for us since— we have both in-person and absentee voting here in Louisiana, but we're not as big on it as states like Georgia or North Carolina or West or some Western states are. Do you think this trend is going to continue right on into November, the general election? Do you think the percentage of mail-in voting will be as high or higher at that time than it was in the presidential primary you just had? Absolutely, because I think that there's two things to consider here. The first is that... Given the resurgence in the pandemic in multiple places, 
I think it's going to take that much longer for people to feel confident being out in public for an extended period of time than they were before. And the other thing regarding the extent of mail-in voting is some of it's dependent on how permissive the states are. So, of course, Michigan, where there's been more of a push for absentee voting, as opposed to some states where they have very strict rules as to who can absentee vote. But in general, I do believe you're going to have many more people opting to vote by mail than before. And, and you know, the funny thing, Bill, is the trend in general nationally was for in-person voting, early voting, and then all of a sudden the pandemic came along, and it's almost like mail-in voting kind of got a new lease on life. Absolutely, yes. Well, John Cuvion, let me ask you, going forward, what is Mm -hmm. the timetable? I mean, I'm so confused right now. I don't know when the Democrats nationally are meeting. Uh, I don't know when the Republicans are meeting. I mean, there was something that came out just this week from the Republicans about they're not going to be able to handle things at their convention in Jacksonville as opposed to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they were originally scheduled the way they want to. I mean, how do you see things unfolding here at the national conventions in the next couple of months? So basically what you're having happening, so the Democrats are having their quote-unquote convention from August 17th to the 20th. The Republicans are having it about the same time, and in their case it's going to be the 24th to the 27th. Now the thing to keep in mind here is you have a couple other external factors affecting the convention. And the second thing is going to be that given that the Democrats have a different attitude about the pandemic than the Republicans do, the Democrats have pretty much decided it's going to be almost entirely virtual, where you know many congressmen and party delegates are skipping attending. In the Republicans' case, the current version I've read is that for the first three of the four nights of the convention, only delegates can attend. Then, of course, guest and spouse and all that can attend on the, the night that President Trump gets renominated. So it's going to be a different type of convention than what we've seen in the past on both sides. Well, now, for the Republicans, these three or four nights, is this all in Jacksonville? What happened to Charlotte? Is there anything left in Charlotte anymore? I think they're doing a, some pro forma work, but in terms of my understanding what is going to be televised, that's that's really Jacksonville. In other words, there's you know, some things that the party leadership may be voting on in Charlotte, but because they're under much stricter uh, coronavirus rules than Florida is, minimal activity is going to occur in Charlotte. What uh, The Democrats are in Milwaukee, right? But Correct. you say uh-huh. it's going to be virtually uh, virtual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if it's virtually virtual, uh, what are people nationally going to see from Milwaukee? I mean, anything, they'll just be told, okay, this is Milwaukee, but otherwise nobody would really be able to identify the city that they're holding the convention in with all these speakers speaking remotely or what? Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is given that you're having not only a change in the way the conventions are being conducted, but I think that there also has been declining interest over time in these conventions. So, I'm even wondering to what extent they will get full coverage other than perhaps, say, the keynote speech or Biden's acceptance speech or President Trump's acceptance speech. In other words, gavel-to-gavel coverage is one of those things that's fading away. Yeah, it was actually thought to be in some trouble as as a future event, uh, even before this year in coronavirus. People were saying, 
conventions are an anachronism. Uh, you know, they're passe. Uh, there's yeah. no reason we should be covering them and focusing attention on them the way we do. They're not like the good old days a century ago or two centuries ago. And yeah. this has really speeded everything up, hasn't it? You know, it's, the last time I really remember that both parties had an active convention was way back in 1980, where you actually had a question about whether both candidates could win on the first ballot. But since then, there's been a lot less suspense. I mean, you occasionally have flare-ups such as speeches that are given that are controversial, but by and large, they don't quite have the excitement they once did. Yeah, interestingly, you mentioned 1980. That was the one national convention held by the Republicans, by the way, in Michigan, in Detroit. That was when Ronald Reagan was nominated, and I remember that convention well, and you're right. There was some mystery about whether he'd win on the first ballot and who his running mate was going to be and uh, so forth. So um, those were the days when uh, you had a little drama involved in yeah. these conventions. And you had the Gerald Ford drama because exactly. that was yep. – for a few days you had a legitimate question as to whether you could have – you know, two quote-unquote co-presidents on the ticket. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to mention that. And, of course, Gerald Ford is the son of Michigan, a native Michigander, and had been the president, and the idea of a co-presidency was floated. But I think finally Ronald Reagan decided, you know what, I think I can do it all by myself. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how do you see things overall unfolding here in the next month or so, three months up to November? Well, the first thing is that the Trump, can't, the Trump campaign has to turn the ship around because right now, not only are you talking about these massive polling leads that Biden has, but all of a sudden President Trump looks like he's taking on water in places he doesn't need to. And I'm thinking of his spending money in Georgia and Ohio and places like that. So riding the ship for him, to me, is priority number one. And for Joe Biden, his challenge is this. He's sitting on a large lead, but he does not want to be complacent like Michael Dukakis was a generation ago, and that lead evaporated overnight. Because even though Joe Biden right now looks like the perfect antidote to Donald Trump, he has not really been tested yet. In other words, obviously he has to peer the debates, and then people will start to scrutinize his record like they would any challenger. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you, do you think the presidential debates will actually be held? There's some speculation they might be scrubbed. Well, even if it weren't quote-unquote held, I could see it being held kind of in a virtual setting where perhaps the two of them are in a a Zoom or a Skype type of format. Yeah. Uh, Do you think in Louisiana the results are going to be much different than they were in 2016 in terms of Trump winning? I believe he'd win Louisiana comfortably. It's probably going to be a bit narrower of a margin because one of the things I saw, and this was another takeaway from early voting that I think has some applicability in Michigan, particularly Wayne County, is that I did see a much more energized black electorate relative to what I saw in 2016. And I think to some extent, when you're talking about losing a state by 10,000 votes, that a less than energized black electorate in Detroit or other places like even Flint or Saginaw or Lansing and so forth That's 10,000 votes easily right there. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, we could talk about this forever. You've done a great job, John Cuvion, of JMC Analytics and Polling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you for being our guest once again, John Cuvion. Always my pleasure. We'll be back next week with still more.